0: From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and this time, we're going to do a Geek Out episode. You seem to like the language family shows, and so do I, and I have always wanted to do Southeast Asia. We're talking about that little pouch where there's Vietnam and Laos and Cambodia and Thailand. What's going on down there? You might justifiably think that there's some one language family that exists there. And you might think it has something to do with Chinese, you know, Chinese has relatives, and there must be relatives of Chinese spoken down there. And, you know, the people in those particular countries, physically, they look somewhat alike from a distance. And from a distance, the languages sound kind of similar, i.e. they sound kind of like Chinese. So you'd think that the language family situation in Southeast Asia is pretty transparent, but no, it's not. All sorts of stuff has been going on down there and is now. It's a fascinating region. And I dedicate this episode to my colleague and friend, Jim Matisoff, who I worked with in the Berkeley Linguistics Department back in the day. And he and I are still in touch. And my introduction to the languages of this part of the world was through him. There's so much that I would never know if I hadn't known Jim. So, Jim, this one goes out to you. These languages can be hard to get a handle on if you are an Indo-European language speaker. They they seem kind of impenetrable. The tones are completely alien to we who speak English or French or Dutch or even Russian or something like that. And a lot of the alphabets, we, we can't read them. And so you know even if we see a menu, that's the way we might encounter these languages most often, at least I do. You can't read the script. And so there's just a kind of a mystery. Let's dig in a little bit. What's going on with Southeast Asia? Well, for one thing, it's not just some Chinese or something like Chinese, and it's not just some one other family. It's not even just some two other families. It's really fun stuff. So, let's take the situation segment by segment. There are hundreds of languages spoken down here, but there are certain ones that are the biggies. And Vietnamese and Cambodian are what you could call flagship languages. Representatives of a language family called Austroasiatic. So, one of the three families in this region is Austroasiatic, and that's represented by Vietnamese and Cambodian. They are related. The thing that stands out most about them to us from a distance is that many these languages have tones. They're very much like Chinese, but they tend to have more tones than Chinese. So, for example, in Vietnamese, you can pronounce a syllable on one of six different tones and it completely changes the meaning. Now, I'm not going to imitate it myself. I will never be able to wangle Vietnamese. So, this is a native speaker and the syllable is ba. Listen to this person saying it. Ba. That's three. Ba. That means governor. Ba. That means lady. Ba. That means poison. Ba. Then it means residue. Ba. That means at random. And this is not just ba. This is all syllables, this is the way that language works. That makes it something so different from this thing called English. And it really is a little lesson in bilingualism. If we value bilingualism, we must understand that it's something that is best learned early. Imagine learning a language over the age of about 15 where the tones are that important and you're not used to them. It's virtually impossible unless you're completely immersed and a little bit obsessive. In this country, we value bilingualism supposedly, but then so many people are bilingual in Spanish and English, and somehow it seems that in the minds of many, that doesn't count as bilingual. That's a whole rant that I'll get into some other time. But in general, languages are such that they are best learned... By toddlers and small children, and nothing makes that clearer than how these tonal languages work. You'd think that because it has these tones, that Vietnamese and Chinese would be related. People have thought so. There are some people who still think so now, and it's not the case. But before we get to that case and why it doesn't work, there's something beyond the tones. The tones are just part of the story. Listen, for example, to this word for poison again. Bả. And now listen to the one for residue. Ba Do you hear that it's not only the tone, it's also that residue is said in a kind of a creaky way, a little bit of a uh, little bit of like a door opening on an old radio show like like that. That's a thing that is called creakiness. And of all things, that is as important in many languages as tones in distinguishing one word from another one. For example, there is another Austroasiatic language called khmu. Isn't that cute? You can imagine having a (laughs) khmu as a pet. But there are many varieties of khmu. And in one variety of khmu, this business of creakiness actually alone makes the difference between one word and another. So, for example, pok means to take a bite. Pock means to cut down a tree. Pok, pok 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 It's just the creakiness. Or, for example, there's another one of these languages. There's one called brew, spoken in Thailand. And there is a word, lup, that's to jump over something. Lup, but then lup means to pat fondly. Isn't that neat? Lup is to jump over, like the cow jumps over the moon. Lup is to caress, something kind of sexy. That's called creakiness. There are two things. There's creakiness, and then there's breathiness. So, hypothetically, you could have pok pok and pok That would be the breathy version. That's called register. And there are languages that are tonal, then there are other languages that are very similar where it isn't tones, but it's that difference in quality that's called register. You have a lot of that in Southeast Asia. Absolutely fascinating. And then... What can happen is that tones can become register distinctions, so you can start with these pitch distinctions, and then it becomes this difference between creakiness and breathiness, or you can have the creakiness and the breathiness turning into tones, that happens all the time, or all of it just falls apart, and you don't have tones or register, but that doesn't mean that then you just go to what we think of as a normal language, like English, by no means, if the tones disappear and they don't become register, or if the register disappears and doesn't become tones, what you get is a Lots and lots of vowels. You get a language where there are more distinct vowels than we could ever imagine a language having. In fact, Austroasiatic languages in this region have the largest vowel inventories in the world. You have a language where there are, say, 30, 32 different vowels as opposed to an English where there are about 15. That's going to be Austroasiatic. So, for example, Cambodian or Khmer. Cambodian, depending on how you count it, has at least 25 different vowels. You could say 30. And so listen, for example, to this native speaker making the distinctions.
1: Ah, uh, Ai, au, om, om, am, ah, I, oh, eh,
0: o. Oh. So that's Austro-Asiatic. These are languages that either have tones or they have register distinctions between pathy creaky, and normal. Or they just have way too many vowels, and Cambodian is a beautiful example of that. Cambodian is not tonal, but what it is instead is it has just an amazing number of vowels. Now, actually, I suppose it's time for a song, and I know I'm supposed to play something from Miss Saigon because we're talking about Vietnam, but you know what? I'm going to admit something. I don't like Miss Icon, so I'm not going to play something from that. So why don't we try another Miss show, like Miss Liberty. Miss Liberty was a failed musical about the genesis of the Statue of Liberty. Can you imagine people singing and dancing about that? This was Irving Berlin, and this was in between his hits, Annie, Get Your Gun, and Call Me Madam. And, of course, the songs were great. And, of course, we're going to hear one. This is A Little Fish in a Big Pond. And you know who's singing? It's Eddie Albert. So if you remember Eddie Albert from Green Acres singing the theme song, this is young Eddie Albert, and he is singing on the Broadway stage. This is A Little Fish in a Big Pond. I've always liked this song.
1: I I just don't belong in any big town. A little fish in a big pond has plenty of room to swim. But swimming around our big fish, all ready to pounce on him. Back to his little pond, he starts to roam. A little fish spreads his fins and begins to swim back home. That's me, a little fish in a big pond, all wrong. That's me, a little fish where a little fish don't belong. A little man in a big town gets butterflies in his dome. I'm ready to spread my fin and begin to swim. Back home to the little pond where the little fish
0: and a little man belong. Austroasiatic is one thing, then you've got Hmong Mian. Many of us have probably heard of the Hmong language, although the truth is the Hmong language is actually a few dozen languages, depending on how you count it. There isn't just one. It's a family, and the name of the family is Hmong Mian. Now, in Chinese, it's called Miao Yao which is much cuter because it sounds like a cat. And that's what this family was known more widely as until relatively recently. But no, it's Hmong Mian, not Meow Yao. Meow Yao is cute, but Hmong Mian. The Hmong Mian languages, if you look at a map, of language families in southeast asia they're sprinkled in laos and vietnam you know here and here it, it looks like somebody put sesame seeds on something and the hmong mien languages look like that and the hmong mien languages are interesting for many reasons one of them is that boy do they take the tones far and so some of these languages have 12 different tones so for example here's one of them this is the white hmong language White mmung, their colors, there's green Hmong, etc. White Hmong has seven tones. Listen to what pa means depending on what tone you use. Bah. Like a ball. Bah. Pancreas. Ba thorn. Bah. Female. Bah. To throw. Bah. Paternal grandmother, not maternal grandmother, paternal grandmother. Bah. To see. So all of that. You have to know this in order to speak Hmong. Now, actually, listen to the difference between to throw and paternal grandmother once again. Ba. Ba. You hear that? Paternal grandmother is breathy. So it's not only tone, there's also a register, as we call it, issue here. There's a breathiness to paternal grandmother, that way that it sounds kind of like a sigh. That's not just this speaker's eccentricity. You have to say it that way. Now, the Hbong languages teach you a kind of a lesson because you see them sprinkled like these seeds. Why is it like that? Why would a language family be distributed in that way where it's only just in dots? And if we pulled the camera in closer, we'd see that these languages are actually mostly spoken up in the hills. Most Hmong speakers are up high. Why? Why would it be like this? Is this the way it was originally? Or is it that people started out in one place and then they kind of scattered for some reason and only wanted to live up on the hills? No, that's not what happened. What it is, is that Hmong Mien used to be distributed in a nice, smooth, ordinary way, like a normal language family is. But this situation where you've got the sesame seeds is a laterally development because essentially the speakers of Meng Yin were chased up into those hills. When you see a family distributed in that way, it's because somebody overran these people in the past. And in this case, it was the Chinese. The Chinese moved southward and what was once a uniform territory of Hmong Mien speakers became Hmong Mien speakers, kind of <laughs> shuddering in a way, up in the hills, while down in the flatlands, Chinese varieties took over. And not only did Chinese chase people into different places, but what happened really on the ground is that people came together, people mixed, people learned each other's languages. What's happened in Southeast Asia is that the Chinese have migrated down, have conquered down. The History is different from century to century, from millennium to millennium. And as a result, the language families of Southeast Asia have become more like Chinese, in fact, an awful lot like Chinese, because speakers of Chinese mixed in with people who were speaking the original versions of these families. And so, Vietnamese is so much like Chinese, because the Chinese moved down and mixed with speakers of languages like Vietnamese and made these languages that way. The Hmong mien languages have all of these tones and are very Chinese-like in all sorts of other ways because they mixed with Chinese. So what do I mean by like Chinese? Well, what I mean is that in a language like Mandarin, everything is based on these little syllables. And of course, there are only so many little syllables you can come up with, with a consonant and a vowel like ma, b, t. And so you need tones so that you have more to work with. A classic example is ma, mother. Ma, horse. Ma, scold. Ma, hemp. And then ma. It's something that you stick at the end of something to make it a question. So you have to make the tones. And it's not that all words in the language are just one syllable. Most of them aren't. But an awful lot are two syllables. That is pretty much the norm. And so compared to something like Russian or English, the language looks on the page kind of telegraphic. And this is a structure that you don't see in many languages of the world. So for example, um, the word for time is two syllables and they have different tones jin, that's time. But then if you say jin and you have the syllables on those tones, that one has them on the same tone, then jin means um event. Then if you say jin and you have those two tones on the syllables, then that means practice, like practice makes perfect. Short syllables distinguished by tones, generally two syllables at a time. That's not the way most languages of the world are. There are actually very few clusters of languages like that. There are few languages like that in West Africa. There are some languages that you can say are like that in Mexico. But they really do cluster in this part of the world where you have Chinese and then these three other families. It's not by chance that you get this rather unusual configuration as to how a language would go in this part of the world among so many families. It means that the other families got that way because of the influence from another one. And in this case, it's Chinese. Chinese that done the deed. Now, exactly how this happened, who married who, who learned what language, how these languages all came to be so much alike, that's still being worked on by specialists in these families. But the likeness is unmistakable. And so if you are looking at languages of Southeast Asia, they do all seem almost oddly like Chinese to the point that at first, most people thought they must be related to Chinese. but. In fact, if you look at the basic words, you can see that they don't match up enough for these to all be the product of the same original language. You see all sorts of grammatical differences that would not trace back to one original language. It's that Chinese made all of these look like itself. And you can see it, for example, in that Hmong Yen languages are more like Chinese when they're close to Chinese. Or Austroasiatic in Southeast Asia is like Chinese because Chinese actually percolated down into that area. But they're also Austroasiatic languages way over to the west in India, and they're nothing like Chinese. They're Austroasiatic languages down in Malaysia. They're called the Aslian languages. They're not like Chinese at all because the Chinese didn't get down that far. So there's a Chinese story. What's happened is that Chinese has made all of these languages a lot like it, so that some linguists, such as Jim Mattisoff, call this the Sinosphere. More generally, it's one example of many in the world of what's called a Sprachbund. And it means that languages that are spoken contiguously and languages that are often shared in the same mouth often start to seem alike. It's kind of like, you know, roommates or, you know, married couples apparently supposedly start to look alike. So, for example, imagine a place where languages tend to have a word for a and a word for the, where languages tend to have a word meaning have instead of saying that something is to me or something is of me where languages tend to have a perfect construction. And so you say, Elvis has left the building. And languages tend not to have uvular consonants. So you can go p, that's a bilabial consonant. You can go t, that's an alveolar consonant. You can go k, that's a velar consonant. You can go uh, that's a uvular consonant. Uuh. Well, imagine a place where there's a difference between a and the, and there's a word for have, and there's a perfect tense, and there are no uvular consonants. That's called Europe. We think of that as perfectly normal. But really, there is a certain, especially Western European Sprachbund, where languages tend to be alike in ways that are relatively unique in terms of how languages work around the world. Well, in Southeast Asia, it's this Chineseness that is the Sprachbund trait. We have to take a quick break because I have to tell you about slate Slate Plus is heightened Slateness. If you go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Plus, what you can have is Slate's wonderful podcast, with the exception of that weird Lexicon Valley show. But you can have Slate's wonderful podcasts with, for one thing, an addition at the end. You get a tag at the end. You get more information and no ads. Imagine listening to one of these where it doesn't break for advertisements, you know, read by me or anybody else. You just get to listen to the show straight. It's like you you buy your favorite sitcom on DVD and you get to watch it without any commercials. Well, that's what Slate Plus can do for you. And the truth is that right now we have a special offer. You can do Slate Plus for just a dollar for the first month. After that, there's a nominal fee and it really is only nominal. But imagine having this pleasure for a whole month for just a dollar. And you can have extra episodes of Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. So, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Plus, and for a nominal fee, which helps us out in this very straightened time for the media, as for everything else, for a reason I don't even need to tell you, you can have more show with no ads and even extra episodes of some of them. That's Slate Plus. We've got our Austroasiatic, We've got our Hmong Mian. And then there is the one other family. That other family is the one that Thai and Laotian, Lao, are in. Thai and, and Laotian actually are kind of like Danish and Swedish. They are very similar if you ask me, and nobody did, and nobody should, sure, they're kind of the same. You're not supposed to <laughs> say that. They're very close. But Thai and Laotian. And then about 75 other languages that yeah, you've probably never heard of, except for, you know, Thai, and maybe you know that there's a, a, a Laos language. This family is called by the specialists these days, Kradai. However, it used to be called Thai Kadai, and that's what I'm going to call it because that's clearer for us. It's the family that has Thai in it. So, Thai Kadai, otherwise known as Khadai. So that's our other family. And you know, I with Thai, I, I know little bits of lots of languages as you may have guessed with Thai, all the Thai I know is how to say thank you. And it's interesting, you learn something every day. I always knew that you say kup kong krap and that that is guys and kopkum ka. That is women. Now, I have always used that in Thai restaurants, and you know, the waiters and waitresses pretend <laughs> to be impressed, but I was still getting it wrong. I always thought that you said kopkum to a man and kopkum ka to a woman. But no, it's who you are. A man is supposed to say kopkum and a woman is supposed to say kopkum ka. I don't know how many times I have said kop kum, ka to a waitress in a Thai restaurant thinking that that's what I was supposed to say. And, you know, she says, oh, you speak so well. And I sounded like a perfect idiot because I'm a man. I'm supposed to say kop kum ka. Just one of those things. In any case, that's how you say thank you. And you can hear that there are the tones, and Thai, you know, seems very much like Chinese in that it's got the tones, it's got the, you know, monosyllabic structure. You know, I once knew a school kid who <laughs> was reading out a report that he had written about Tiger Woods, and <laughs> the poor guy <laughs> didn't know what Thai-ness was. And he said, and Tiger Woods is half Fay. I thought that was so cute. In any case, it all seems like Chinese. But no, Thai Kadai has a very interesting story. It started as Austronesian. I did a show about Austronesian. Austronesian is the family that has Tagalog in it that has Malay slash Indonesian in it, and then Polynesian languages like Hawaiian and Samoan and Tongan, all of that is Austronesian. It's a family of about a thousand languages. They are nothing (laughs) like Chinese. But Austronesian began on the island of Taiwan and then spread outward. And it's become clear over about the past 15 years that Tai Kadai started out as that, And then moved southward and got smudged over by Chinese like these other families and became what it is today. But the the beginning is different. And so, what it comes down to is that if you become like Chinese, your words get shortened. And that's what happened with Tai Kadai. And so, actually, there is a beautiful quote that somebody did, not about these languages specifically, but about the Chinese family, Sino-Tibetan, that gets across what would have happened to Tai kadai originally. And I don't know why I imagined this this statement by Robert Schaefer in this voice. This is the voice of of a handyman at one of the colleges I went to. He actually talked like this. He would see somebody and he'd say, the word for you is ubiquitous. You're everywhere. So I'm going to do it in his voice. If a high powered racing car is driven at terrific speed into a cement wall. The results on the car will somewhat parallel those on polysyllabic Sino-Tibetan words. The front part will be greatly compressed, parts will have dropped out, and there will be considerable distortion, but the body will remain fairly intact. That's what happens to words in this part of the world. Everything gets short. The front gets lopped off. The end gets lopped off. And that's how you get these short Chinese words, feng shui, etc. Well, that's what happened with Thai Kadai because if you look at Thai, everything is everything is short. But in some of the more obscure languages, and especially in one called Buyang, it's, it sounds like the of a woman with that booyah, Booyang. Buyang happens to preserve the original state, and it's the most fascinating thing. And so, if you look at Austronesian languages and you're trying to figure out what the original word for bird would be, it would be Manuk. Manuk would be the word for bird. Now, in Buyang, this Thai Kadai language, the word for bird is Manuk. In Thai, that word is Na, Na. Now, you'd never know there was a relationship between Na and Manuk, with just Thai and looking at Austronesian languages. But what that is, is Manuk after a car accident. And so instead of Manuk, the Ma gets lopped off and the k gets lopped off and you just have the Nu and it becomes Na. So Manuk to Na, that's Thai having become Chinesey, so to speak, but Buyang preserves the original state. Or for example, the original Austronesian word for I would be Mata. So that's good. Now, in Thai, the word for I is ta, ta. Okay, well, that might be an accident, mata, ta. ta. But in Buyang, the word for I is mata. And this just goes on and on and on. The word for to die, to perish, matai. And in Buyang it's mate. It just goes on and on. It's quite clear from Buyang that Thai Kadai started as one of these Austronesian languages. And most of the Thai-Kadai languages got this Chinese treatment. They basically got Chineseified, and so all the syllables got a lot shorter to the point that the original state is unrecognizable and basically unreconstructable if you just look at something like Thai. But if you look at Buyang, you see the original state. And so it's become clear that the people who spoke the original Thai-Kadai language that became today's 75 would have been up north where Austronesian was arising. Then they moved downward. They came into contact with Chinese speakers, and you got the Chinese like Thai of now. So, Thai is kind of like a jazz version of the original Thai Kadai language. It's like it, it it took the soul of the original and kind of boiled it down. It's like Carol King's song, Jazz Man. Lift me warm. One other thing about Southeast Asia, and that is the Andaman Islands are over to the west of this peninsula of sorts. And there's a little story there that I have found so fascinating, and I've wanted to get it into one of these episodes. And I'm going to slip it in here because it just shows you how much fun these sorts of things can be, how science can proceed, what sorts of stories can be told by what sorts of data. There is a language spoken way up in India, near Nepal, called Kusunda. Kusunda is weird in that it's not related to any of the other languages there. If you're up near Nepal, the language is supposed to be either Indo-European, Indo-Aryan, related to languages like Hindi, or it's supposed to be a Sino-Tibetan language spoken to the West – And so, one of the languages related to Chinese, there are languages of that family over in India, too. Or there's some other things it could be, but it's not supposed to be just itself all alone. It's an isolate, is what that's called. Now, the people who speak Kusunda, or spoke, I think it's pretty much extinct now, but spoke it until recently, are smaller and darker than the surrounding people in the area. And here's a tribute to another linguist, Merit Rulin controversial, but I think undersung. He passed away recently, and so this is my tribute to him. He did an article about 15 years ago where he noticed that Kusunda had some unusual similarities to a language spoken in the Andaman Islands called Juwoi. He was noticing that the word for I is chi in Kusunda, and it's tui in Juwoi. The word for you is "nu." In Kusunda, it's Ngui in Juwoi. The word for he, she, it, Gida in Kusunda, Kita in juoi. That's too close to be an accident. And then there's some things like, how do you do mine, Chiyi in Kusunda, Tiye in juoi and so on. In terms of how human migrations go, people would have passed through that Kusunda region and gotten down to the Andaman Islands good 60,000 years ago, based on today's estimates. When Merritt was writing, he thought it would be like 80. Now I think people would say 60. But this would have meant that languages retain those similarities over 60,000 years. And so that seemed to fly in the face of the idea that many conservative specialists of language change have, that once you get past about 10,000 years' distance, things have changed too much for you to be able to reconstruct anything, especially with things going on like thai Kadai becoming like Chinese, when originally it would have been a lot like Indonesian and Hawaiian. So, the idea is that the signal just fades. But Merritt was making the point that this would seem to suggest that you can reconstruct things that have been sitting there for many tens of thousands of years. Nobody paid attention to the article that he wrote about this, and I thought that wasn't fair. He was also trying to push it that Kusunda was similar to languages spoken way down on New Guinea. I found that less convincing. But the Juwoy thing seemed Pretty solid. But nevertheless, it still seemed like kind of a stretch. 60,000 years and things changed that little. Seemed a little weird, and yet there was no reason to think there had been any communication between these very isolated people on the Andaman Islands and very isolated people speaking Kusunda. Well, you know what? Now we know why and I have no reason to think that Merritt ever knew this, and I'm not sure anybody else is paying any attention to this, but it's something that I have noticed. It has been shown that the Andaman people only got to those islands about 25,000 years ago. They are a later migration, not the original people, if there were any. And that explains why Kusunda and Juwoi could be so alike. Because if it's only 25,000 years, it's more than 10,000, but not 60,000. It actually makes a kind of sense that you would have chi, twee, Nu, Gida, Kita, you could preserve that over 25,000 years. I think even conservative language change specialists could allow that. So that explains it, which means that those similarities could have been read themselves 15 years ago as indicating that the Andaman Islanders got there later than we would think. Instead, it's modern genetic analysis that's revealed it, but the linguistic data could have told us way back then. So the linguistic data didn't say what Merritt thought it did, but still, still, it was very valuable because it actually tipped us off, if we had known to read it that way, that today's Andaman Islanders got there much later than we would have thought. That is Southeast Asia for you. And I want to give you a little random something. This is from Ben Theroni, And they have written me that their child likes pink lady apples. And of course, you talk about the apple as being a pink lady. Well, his child, Milo, has gone from calling these apples pink ladies to pink ladies. So a perfect example of the backshift, which I enjoyed hearing about. You know... I think about being 9 years old like my oldest kid now. I don't have any problems and pop music sounded like jazz man. More of that song I have always loved jazz man. I remember hearing it at that age when it was always a sunny day. You were always in the back seat of some Chevrolet listening to either the Spinners or Carol King. Reach us at LexiconValley at Slate.com. That's LexiconValley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash LexiconValley. By the way, the best apple, I mean, pink ladies are nice, pink ladies, but the best apple is the stamen. I highly recommend it. S-T-A-Y-M-A-N. It actually makes me kind of like apples, which is difficult. Mike Volo is, as always, the editor. And I am John McWhorter. (laughs)
1: Can. F- <laughs>